Wow. Wow. This is awkward. It's like the movie Contact. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's as close as I can do to that noise. Remember that? That was a great movie, I thought. Um, who is it? Let's see if I can find that sound. Um, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't seen that movie. Um, oh, well, then that you must be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Indeed. At first, I thought you were talking about, uh, what's the one that came out with Amy Adams, uh, last year arrival arrival yes that's what i thought you were talking about no but i have not seen contact you should watch it oh but i did watch um let's see it was on netflix i watched an episode of let's see explained on netflix and it was about extraterrestrial life because I have been very into uh, Fermi's paradox lately and wondering about aliens. And, um, and so I watched an episode of that unexplained and they had an, uh, featured the woman who Jodie Foster's character was based on in that movie. Oh, I thought you'd be more interested in that. <laughs> Apparently not. Well, I'm trying, I'm try- well, I'm trying to get this sound to play, so I'm very preoccupied oh, okay. right now. Hold on. This is actually really important. Have you found the noise yet, Guy? And why don't we have a podcast soundboard yet after episode four? Like, we should have a board where we push a button. It's like, sound. <laughs> whooshing, whooshing. <laughs> oh, is that the sound? <gasps> oh, that's the contact... That's what I was hoping. But yeah. The aliens are coming. Yes. The aliens are coming. Yes. There it is. <laughs> so good. This I is, just shivered. I'm really freaked out. This right should now. be our intro song, actually. I think that should be our song. I like the money thing, but that is where it's at. <laughs> just like f- playing for five minutes before we even say anything. No the one would ever are, listen. No, they'll go through the roof for one episode, and then everybody will unsubscribe. <laughs> they would listen to the first ten seconds, and then they're like, um, "Hey guys, you have an audio issue with this week's episode." No, no, we don't. We're just playing five minutes of that horrific sound of alien slash uh, giant Iron Man walking around. So you're welcome. It's I amazing. don't need to see that movie. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> Such a mistake. So, Kelly, do you use click on ads on the Internet? No, I purposely don't actually. Um, do you have an ad I, blocker? Uh, no, I don't have an ad blocker. But when I do put something in Google search, unless I, oh, this is so bad, but unless I, this is good. It's a big, um, a very, very large corporation. I will purposely not click on the ads in the, in the top part there. 
because a, I don't want to take money or, you know, do the pay-per-click for that company. And B, I prefer to see what comes up in organic search results as a digital marketer. Right. Well, that's what's so funny is, is that, you know, our minds are so poisoned by all this stuff. So I've never clicked on a paid ad, but you know, the, I don't know if they've have a new number out, but the last time I saw it reported, there was some kind of report, like 60% of Americans don't even realize there was a difference between paid and organic ads which I think is an interesting thing. But, you know, 98% of Google's revenue still comes from that. So somebody's clicking on them. Must See, be robots. I, I thought I had seen something, and I don't have the uh, number to go with it, so this will be with much more of a grain of salt. But I thought I saw an article recently that actually said that less people are clicking on ads uh, more and more because I heard that people were getting more informed, and they're like, oh, ads, I don't want to click on those. Well, fortunately, our guest today will be able to help straighten all of this out. Whew, I cannot wait to talk to Rand Fishkin and see if he can help us solve the puzzle that is paid ads online and every other marketing question we've ever had. And life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Exactly. Money makes a Welcome to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing with your hosts, Key Sakalakis and Kelly Street, teaching you how to promote, market, and make fat stacks for your legal practice here on Legal Talk Network. This is the most exciting guest for me so far. I reached out to him to ask if he could share his wisdom with our listeners, because as an incredibly transparent, incredibly giving of his mind and content and ideas, I just thought he would be one of the best possible guests we could get for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. So, Gee, anything to add to what I already said? No, I uh, completely agree. You know, I've I've thanked Rand many, many times. Uh, when I was a young lawyer, uh, making the transition into being an entrepreneur and starting our business, the go-to place Rand was the person who I learned SEO from, and so very, very excited and honored that he joined us today. Uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Rand Fishkin. Hey, hi. Howdy, Guy. Howdy, Kelly. Great to be with you guys. So, Rand, can you tell our listeners who should all be familiar with you, in case they aren't, a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, absolutely. I started a company initially called SEO Moz and then later called Moz, uh, first as a blog and then as a consulting firm. And in 2007, it transitioned to a software company. Uh, of which I was CEO, and over the next seven years, I grew that company from, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in revenue to uh, thirty million, and to about 150, 200 employees. Uh, we raised several rounds of venture capital, and over the next, yeah, over the next uh, few years, I, I stepped down as CEO, uh, stayed on as an individual contributor, and as chairman of the board. And I just left that company a few months ago to start a new one called SparkToro, where I'm 
founder and CEO, but it's a it's a two person company, um, and doing things a little differently this time, not going the venture capital route, using a very unique structure for the financing, and uh, involved in several other projects. I co-founded Inbound.org, which was acquired by um, HubSpot, and have. I've uh, been working for the last year on an initiative to help make conferences and events safer, particularly for women, called Project Event Safe. Um, and I just published a book called Lost and Founder, which is about my journey at Moz and about uh, building a company and many of the pitfalls that uh, traditional Silicon Valley startup wisdom can expose founders and entrepreneurs to. So, yeah, I haven't been busy at all, just uh, <laughs> sitting around mostly. <laughs> so right away on the topic of your book, I it's on the top of my mind because I just finished reading it last week, and it is so much more than a book about how to or how not to do a startup. You talk so much about values and hiring the right kinds of employees, and there, I mean, there is so much in there for anyone who has a business, let alone startup and that vein of entrepreneurs. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm thrilled to hear that, Kelly. Yeah, I I've been surprised. There's a there's a small community of medical professionals, doctors and nurses who I guess all read it around their hospital and they were tweeting at me and um and sending me nice comments. It's been it's been interesting to see how different parts of the book resonate with different people. You know, for some folks the chapters on uh, fundraising are really big for them. On others, it's, you know, the chapters about building core values or growing a team. Some people really like the stuff on marketing and product. And some folks are, you know, were really um, resonated with the chapter on depression. So, yeah, it sort of feels like there's a, a lot of different sections of the book that work for different folks. And I, um, I don't think I saw that coming when I when I first wrote it. But it's been cool to see. Yeah. And a lot of those topics are particularly important uh, in the legal community. Legal community is notorious for suffering from substance uh, abuse issues. And mm. and really, I, to me, I think the their thing is, is that it's when you're t- in the vein of talking about client development and earning new business, you know, lawyers is a, ser- it's a service industry. It's reputation and relationships. Yeah. And so I think that for lawyers, I think that the book would be really informative for those that are trying to identify their values. I mean, how how can you build a reputation, build relationships if you don't have a guiding force in the form of some kind of values? Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really tough thing. And oftentimes, you know, the the legal professionals that I am most familiar with uh, here in the Seattle area, where where I live and where I founded both my companies, have built those reputations sort of on the backs of or or in the mode of their own values and the the things that they want to see in the world. So the attorney, for example, the attorney that we used for SparkToro, Joe Wallen from Carney Bradley Spellman, he essentially started an initiative to get uh, crowdfunding opportunities on the ballot in Washington state and actually ended up getting that passed. And a lot of, it's actually mostly breweries you know, places that make beer around here have ended up using using that uh, crowdfunding system that that Joe built. But because of that, you know, I had heard of him. A lot of people in my network were familiar with him, and so when I said, "Hey, I want to do something in the alternative financing 
format for you know an angel raise for a new startup, folks pointed me to Joe, and uh, you know I think I think that's built on the back of Joe saying, "Hey, this should exist," and you know I feel like this is missing from our community. Uh, so I think that's certainly you know that's something I've seen in my personal experience in the legal field as well. Yeah, one of the things about core values that I loved that you said is, I believe it was in response to someone else at your company, you said, well, they're not core values if you're willing to sacrifice them in exchange for money. And I think that is so important when, especially when you're thinking about your client development, if you're willing to get the kinds of clients who don't fit your values, then you're not really living your values. Well, or I think maybe your real values are something that's not those things, right? It could be that your core value is financial growth for the firm. And I don't personally love that. That is not that is not the way that I'm wired. But I do think there's a tremendous amount of value in being self-aware and then in being transparent about that. I think the biggest problem is not when people say, you know, oh, I think, you know, my core value is uh, financial growth for this firm or for my personal practice, and then represent that honestly. I think the problem is folks who say, yeah, let me come up with some core values that sound good, and I'll write them down, I'll put them on the wall, I'll put them on our website, but that's not actually how we operate. And it's that cognitive dissonance that you sort of go through yourself, that you force your team to go through, that your clients experience that really drags you down. So, you know, my biggest piece of advice on that front is if you have things that you are not willing to sacrifice in exchange for great clients or, you know, uh, an amazing deal, uh, great, put that up there and then live that and represent that and show it, show it publicly, right? Do positive things that show that direction and, and do things that where you're saying no, and then show that back to your team and to your clients that, you know, that you say no to these things, even though they're opportunities because of who you are and what you represent. Or, right, be honest with yourself that that's, that's not what you're about, and then make that your, your sort of guiding star, make you know, whatever it is, financial or client uh, successes your guiding star. That's fine. Yeah, so true. I also want to talk about from your book, your section on hacks. And I just <laughs> loved it. You're like, they're called hacks for a reason. Because I think as a marketing agency that Guy and I work at together that he owns, we hear that kind of stuff all the time. Well, what's the one thing that I can do that will suddenly get me to number one in Google? Or what's the one thing I can do that will suddenly get me this huge influx of clients? And there just isn't necessarily one thing that will be the magic solution or the, the magic pill to get these things, just like with anything in life. Yeah, and I think um, I'm sure you you folks have observed this as well, right? Especially working in the on the agency side, is that it is even more true today than it was, say, five or ten years ago. That ranking, you know, purely ranking well in Google for some search query term, right, will not bring you the same caliber of customer or quantity of customer or you know ability to pay customer that it would, you know, in 2008 or 2005, right, or, or even 2012. And I think that's because a lot of consumers, you know, early in Google's development, 
sort of believed that the search engine was almost infallible, right? That not only, it wasn't that the top results just ranked highly and were visible, it was also that they were the best ones. And that belief, I think, has taken, you know, 10 or 15 years to evaporate, but, but evaporate, it mostly has. And so at this point, I think that there are still opportunities to be had, right, by ranking well in Google. And certainly it's a great additional signal. You know, if you've already formed a relationship of some kind, right, if people have heard of you, your, your core, your target uh, customer has heard of you and heard good things about you and you have a good reputation and network, and then you also rank in Google, that can be awesome, right? That can be huge. But if Google is the only thing you have going for you, it's hard for it to stand alone. Right. Absolutely. And uh, this is a actually very nicely teed up because uh, Rand recently published a great post at the SparkToro blog about the future of SEO. And one of the things that, that came out of this, I encourage everybody to go read it, but to kind of jump to the meat of this conversation, I think this, there's so much application for lawyers here, is that uh, one of the things he says is that having 10 searches for a brand name is so much more valuable than a thousand Facebook likes or, or even really a thousand searches because of those very things that there's that built in, whether it's trust, reputation, if they're looking for you, if you're making a name for your firm or for you as an individual practicing lawyer, those searches are so much more valuable uh, over the long run in terms of investing in building your firm as a business than you know, thousands of other of those, you know, indirect proxy type of marketing metrics that, that people tend to focus on. And I think that's one thing that I'd like to, I think you, your experience would be really valuable for our audience in terms of how do lawyers do that? How do lawyers build brand? How do they get people searching on their name? Um, what kind of advice do you have from that context? Yeah, I think one of the things that I have seen that has helped service professionals of all kinds, but especially in professional practices like the legal field, right, where you have uh, essentially, generally speaking, high dollar value clients. And it's very, as you pointed out earlier in the in the podcast, very reputation driven and very network driven. I think my biggest pieces of advice are focus on those two, right? Those, the network and the reputation. But certainly you should also consider things that will earn you attention in and outside your field, right? Right. So if there are talks or presentations that you can give at conferences and events, um, especially if they're, if they're outside the direct legal field, right? So if I'm, if I'm an attorney in Seattle and I am serving the technology sector, is there a talk that I could give at the Seattle Interactive Conference, you know, which is sort of a big, you know, multi-thousands people come to this big event every fall and you know, talk about technology and startup-related subjects and big tech subjects as well, because obviously Seattle is a big town for Amazon and Microsoft. But that sort of exposure to your client base is extraordinary. And the same thing is true for content, right? So if there are resources that you can create, be incredibly valuable to your particular customer base that you can offer uh, potentially for free on your website and that you can get attention and awareness for by you know, discovering the, the people and publications that would help you amplify those to your audience, you know, that can be absolutely huge. And, and we've seen that you know, many, many times where folks will 
have a transformative effect on their business by by publishing even one piece of the right content or or the right message or resource that helps their audience and that earns them a bunch of attention and awareness from that audience. Uh, this is so important because you know the, a lot of lawyers have been sold the make more content bill of goods, you know? And so uh, I think that the way that you just frame that's so important for them that it's this is not a quantity game, right? It's you're not churning out doing the demand media game isn't going to no. do anything for you. Yeah. I, I mean, the only thing that I that I agree with on the make more content side of things is I do agree that if you are making a large amount of content, you are almost certainly, if you're paying attention to and consistently working to improve that content, that you are getting better and better at it. And therefore, over time, you're going to generate more hits. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in the music world, right, it's, it's often said that um, artists who are most successful, their most successful times are when they're producing the most music, not necessarily uh, just because they, you know, that's when their hits came out. And so you could argue that quantity can lead to that big piece. Uh, but I think you have to be relentlessly investing in it with the goal being get to that piece that does really well, get to that resource that does well. And I also, I don't love, I'm sure Kelly and Gee, you guys have seen this tons, right? I don't love the, oh yeah, just start a blog and then, you know, we'll blog three times a week and, and don't do, you don't have to do it yourself, you know, sort of we'll get an intern to blog for you or, um, you know, we'll get uh, just a copywriter to put that together. And I think that historically worked for some folks. And if you get very lucky and do, you know, get an extraordinary person to do that, that, that can sometimes work well. But I I don't love that model anymore. I don't think that's nearly as successful as sort of the authentic, high quality resource that reaches your community and resonates with them. Yeah. When I started doing marketing about 10 years ago, it was all about like, how many blog posts can you publish per week or per month? And now I am definitely on the less is more, create one really good thing versus three, four, five kind of meh things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that some of the, one of the challenges is for folks to figure out what's a really good thing. How do I know that it's going to be really good? And I think one of the best ways to get at that is to do a lot of audience research, right? Whenever you're creating product, you and I start a, you know, a new startup company. We, we were going to do a tremendous amount of customer interviews to try and figure out what our customers' pain points are and what they have issues with around whatever we're building and how they try and solve that today. And I think that's something that's missing in a lot of content development. And I, I believe that when you add that in, I, my most successful content has always been because I've heard about a pain point again and again and again. You know, uh, Guy, you mentioned my recent blog post on sort of future of SEO stuff. It was because I, I heard this constant drumbeat of, I'm worried about these issues. I'm worried about these issues with Google. I, I don't know how it all fits together. I'm not sure how it's going to impact my business and sort of our field and um, and hearing that nervousness again and again, I thought, hang on a minute. I, I think I think we actually know the answer to this. And when we all get in a, together in a room, we agree on what it is, but it hasn't been succinctly codified and assembled and broadcast. And that's something I can do on my blog. 
right? And so um, finding real customer pain points and then solving those through resources, I would urge attorneys to do that as well. And attorneys are having all the time with customers and potential customers, and I think can get a great sense for what their audience needs and what's missing, and then they can produce that. Right. Yeah, I I definitely I've recommended before that one thing and I'll see if you agree with this Rand. One of the things that is really great for thinking about your content strategy is like go back to your intakes with potential clients and what are the things they're worried about? What are the questions they're asking? What are the common issues that they're coming across with? And if you kind of if you keep track of that information, you can easily pull from those things and find blog post ideas or video ideas that you can work with. Yeah, 100% agree. I think um, potentially using your contact form on the website can also be helpful for this. Right, because if you if you have sort of a an open paragraph form field uh, that lets folks put in their you know their concerns their requests, uh, you can aggregate those or provide them to your content marketing agency, right, or your SEO agency, and say like, hey, here's uh you know I'm removing all the personally identifiable information, but here's the last hundred you know people who filled out the contact form, and here's the paragraph of what they've left, and then that that agency can go through and go hmm here are the top five problems that are being surfaced by your potential customers. These seem like hot topics, right? These are things that, that might be valuable. I think the other piece too, the other piece that, that is often missing is a lot of times, even when great material is produced, two big things hold it back. And one, I think one of those is UI and UX, essentially the, you know, the website and the way the content is presented doesn't seem credible. And so people who visit it don't trust it because of how it looks and feels. It doesn't seem authoritative. It doesn't seem high quality. It doesn't seem trustworthy. And so they, you know, click the back button, go somewhere else. And that's certainly a big problem. And then the second one is there's no one to amplify it. There's no sort of influential publications or people who are talking about what you've produced. And I think for that reason, there's, uh, there can be a lot of value in looking at, you know, a PR style or, or SEO style outreach, right? Where someone is actually reaching out and talking to the influential publications and people in your field to earn that amplification. And second, I think that you can and maybe should be considering Barnacle SEO, mm-hmm. um, where essentially you produce content that you place on other websites that rank extraordinarily well, right? So, hey, maybe I'm going to submit this to a journal or to a major publication in our field or to you know, a, just a, a big magazine or something that accepts contributors like uh, Forbes or something like that, right? Because I know, A, it can rank well, and B, it'll be likely to get that amplification and have that credibility on that platform. And my name and business will be associated with it. So even though I don't completely control the experience, I can still benefit a lot from that. And, you know, as we see, right, like I talked about in the blog post, as we see fewer and fewer websites dominating more and more of Google's results, I think that particle SEO becomes even more important. The thing that really resonates with me, having talked to so many lawyers about online marketing that's missed, is that the amplification piece and really spending the time, as you mentioned, doing the research. So maybe we could talk a little bit more about that and get a little bit tactical 
You mentioned Barnacle SEO, identifying some of these places that you might use to amplify content, which I think is a great tip. What other tools or processes or methods, uh, aside from just searching in Google, are available for lawyers to go out there and say, I want to really try to understand who the influencers are in my audience, who are the people in my audience I'm trying to attract, you know, where are they, how are they connected, where are they listening to, what can you tell folks about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I can tell you that it's such a pain in the butt right now that that is where <laughs> I decided to build my next startup. Um, yeah, I so, kind of laid it up there uh, for you on that one. <laughs> well, it's not to say there's no tools. Um, there is, so in the classic PR world, there are a number of tools that are sort of, you know, the PR database that you can search through. So, you know, you might say, okay, well, what are the big publications in the legal field and who are the sort of journalists and, and writers who author for them? And that is, I think Cision actually owns a bunch of those. It used to be uh, Cision, Meltwater, Gorkana, uh, a few others, but I think Cision has sort of consolidated that field pretty well. So Cision is C-I-S-I-O-N. And, you know, I, I'm not sure it makes sense. I guess if you have a larger legal practice and you have a PR team on staff, uh, subscription decision, I think is in the $15,000 a year range. I've heard you can negotiate, by the way. So for those of you who are considering that tool, you, <laughs> that, the most you important might, uh, tip. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You might be able to save a good bit of money by, uh, by telling them that, you know, tell them you're about to sign up for, you know, spark Toro and that they'll maybe give you a better deal. I don't know. Um, the, <laughs> I think that the challenge right now is that those databases, um, Cision and the people like them are essentially, they have two challenges. One, they're very focused on the sort of old school PR, you know, big media and the journalists who write for big media. So if that's not your target audience, right, if you're looking for more, you know, local press or um, blogs and small websites or influential accounts on social media platforms, maybe, you know, maybe Twitter or LinkedIn, which is actually LinkedIn is um, can be an extraordinary network for amplification to the right sorts of professionals in the in the legal field, in professional services, fields of all kinds. So those are not well exposed, right? Neither, unfortunately, are podcasts. I think podcasts are nearly invisible, despite being incredibly popular. I think, I, think I saw the, the recent um, stat from uh, the Pew American, Internet and American Life Project was that more than one in five, more than 20% of Americans are listening to one podcast or more every week, which is almost unbelievable to me. Maybe it was, maybe it was wow. more than one per month, but still extraordinary, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, podcasting was supposed to be dead in 2010, and now it's had this insane resurgence, and uh, especially among you know, certain demographics, um, often, you know, upper middle class and wealthy demographics, which a lot of attorneys want to reach, podcasts are huge, but discovery of that is a manual process. So, Guy, right. unfortunately, my best advice, you know, if, if PR world is not for you, is you do have to do a lot of manual searching today. Yep. That's where we live. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So, I mean, I've watched, you know, I watched a bunch of, for research for SparkTora, I watch a bunch of agencies and consultants and in-house marketers and entrepreneurs do this for themselves, right? To basically say, okay, this is the audience I want to reach. Now, what are the publications they listen to? Who are the people they pay attention to? 
you know, and you go to Google and you do a bunch of these searches and find these lists and then copy and paste them all into a big Excel spreadsheet. And then you go to Twitter and you do a bunch of searching there. And then you go to LinkedIn, you do a bunch of searching there. And you go to YouTube and you do a bunch of searching there. And then you look for any subreddits that might be popular. And then you go to some of the nascent podcast search engines. I think Google is, a, is about to come out with a, with a podcast uh, search system. So, you know, Literally, you're going to these 10, 12 different platforms, doing a bunch of searches, and then copying and pasting and trying to estimate audience size. And that's, uh, that feels ridiculous to me. It feels like how SEO was before we had any software in like 2002. So right. yeah, that's something I want to try and solve with SparkToro, but we won't have a product for at least six to nine months. But still, I think that's a, that's a big one. We'll be following along in, in eager anticipation. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, one uh, one tool that I do know some folks love is uh, for this is BuzzSumo. So essentially, yeah. BuzzSumo, it, it's not exactly what you're looking for here, but it, it will let you search for keywords and find the content that has performed best on some social networks. I think it's just maybe Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook right now. And then from there, you can spot sort of influential publications in that field that have done well with content there already. So if you're looking to do that barnacle SEO type of stuff, or if you're looking to, you know, reach out to folks who've been influential in the field previously and had successful pieces published uh, in your area, that can be a resource as well. It's a little indirect, but um, I like that tool. So speaking of tools and tools that you have created, uh, SparkScore, yeah. I am really fascinated with it. Um, I did our SparkScore for Attorney Sync, the digital marketing agency that <laughs> you know, uh -oh. I know, uh oh, it was an uh oh, and I was very embarrassed of our score. So I did not share it, but I was like, oh, this, there's a lot of stuff here. There is a lot that goes into the Spark score. So I, I want to know kind of what you see for how people can use this and the different kinds of things they can learn from uh, figuring out their Spark score. Oh, sure. So, I mean, it's a very, um, today it's pretty simplistic. It's just for Twitter. And the, you know, the idea that we had behind this is that we, we saw a bunch of non-ideal behavior among a lot of the people who were, you know, doing this, this type of research, this outreach stuff. And basically, you can think of it most simplistically through an example of, I do a search for, you know, oh, I want to find out who are the big um, influencers in fashion, right? And so it comes back to me with a, um, I just, I search for fashion, I get a, a list of you know, 20 Twitter accounts, I look at them and I see that, oh, this one has the most followers. This one has, you know, 2 million followers. And this other one down here only has 100,000 followers. And what we observed much of the time is that follower count is how everyone prioritizes, right? They think more followers equals a bigger uh, source of influence. When in fact, that is not only not always true, it's often not true. So, you know, in Twitter, you can go and take a look at your analytics, right? And you can see, oh, how many people did each of my tweets reach? What were the number of impressions for a tweet? So if I, you know, if I send out a message on this broadcast platform, how many people will I reach? Instagram gives you this too. And oftentimes people with far fewer followers, you know, a 10th, a 20th of the followers of someone else 
will, because they get high engagement on their content, see many more impressions. So, in fact, uh, we observe this most uh, most potently or most uh, close to home with uh, my wife, Geraldine, who runs a popular Twitter account uh, called at Everywhereist. And yes, I know Geraldine's well. account. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So Geraldine's account, right, has, I think it's like 65 or 70,000 followers. So good number. And mine, my account has 410,000 followers or something. And when I send a tweet, on average, I'm reaching, you know, maybe 10,000, 20,000 people with that message, right? That's how many people see it on Twitter's platform. And when Geraldine sends a tweet, it is frequently 70 or 80,000 people. Wow. So she is, her account is less than a quarter the size of mine in terms of followers, but has four or five times the reach. And Spark Score is us trying to estimate that. So we built Spark Score in a way to try and estimate, hey, how truly influential, how much reach does this account actually have? And over time, we hope to add other networks like LinkedIn and Instagram and um, and potentially YouTube and and possibly blogs and websites as well to try and give an estimate of you know reach of of full content uh, across an individual or a publication. But that problem is kind of pernicious right now, where you're not getting the full story if you're just looking at follower counts. Yeah. And I would, uh, nerdy side thought, I would love to see how this affects the influencer marketing and advertising game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we, it's funny. We've been trying to stay away from the influencer marketing world just because I have this weird feeling. Maybe, maybe you guys can, can tell me if you feel this way too. I feel like five years ago, influencer marketing meant, you know, reaching out to blogs and websites and podcasts and publications and media that could help influence your audience. And today, influencer marketing has changed to mean half-naked people on Instagram, you know, <laughs> that you pay $500 to so that they hold your bottle of shampoo or whatever it is and take a picture of themselves. Yep. Um, right. And <laughs> yeah, and I, we don't do that. That's not what we're helping with. So I feel like we're not influencer marketing because influencer marketing has come to mean this other thing. Yes. Right. All right. Well, and we're running low on time, but this is, it's going to be a kind of change of gears here, but I'm very curious to get your thoughts. You've been very deep in the web for a long time, especially in terms of marketing and business development growth. Right now, it seems like a, so lawyers are constantly seeing more and more bombardment with, uh, there's more ad spots on Google, organic reach is going down on Facebook. You got to pay for it. So it's pay to play, pay to play. The major platforms have shareholders. They got to make money. So you've got that on one side of the coin. And the other side of the coin, you've got ad blockers and you've got the question of the fundamental existence of the web being supported by ads. I don't even know what my question is really. I kind of just wanted to get your thoughts on it. I, I noticed one of the comments yeah. on the on the post that we've been talking about talked about ad blockers and, the, and you had actually mentioned that the adoption rate of ad blockers is a lot lower than maybe people had thought. Yeah. Where are we going? Where are we going online? I mean, I think that there will always be 10 to 20% of web users who are willing to work pretty hard to avoid ads. But it, it seems like, as of right now, the stats are saying an ad-supported web is powerful, right? So we, we just saw Amazon's earnings come out. They have more than doubled their 
revenue from ads on the Amazon platform, which I think a lot of analysts were not anticipating and which the street rewarded them for. And that certainly suggests that, you know, Amazon is also having success where Google and Facebook have had success. Um, We saw, well, Snapchat got punished by the street, but they actually increased advertising spend and effectiveness and number of customers uh, dramatically. So I think they're showing that they can make money there. Twitter's done the same, even with you know plateauing user numbers. Their ad revenues have been pretty remarkable. So I think I think that many folks are realizing that ads are the way to go on the web, and that this is becoming a more ad-driven model. That being said, you know we we just um, I say we Casey and I uh, I've been working with uh, with JumpShot. Um, which is a provider of clickstream data, and they collected for me, you know, a bunch of uh, data over the last couple of years about, you know, web behavior across millions of devices uh, in the U.S. And for every paid click in Google, there are still 15 clicks on an organic result. So paid wow. may feel like it's dominant, but organic is still many, many, you know, um, more than an order of magnitude larger. And I think there's still a tremendous amount of opportunity left in organic and will be for a long time. And I would, I would certainly urge folks not to ignore that. But I agree, you, you have to be creative, right? And you have to be moving from, willing to move from platform to platform, right? Facebook's organic reach is nearly dead. And so I think for Facebook, the savvy folks have been moving to Facebook groups, where they can still get relatively good engagement and interaction. And they've been moving to other platforms like Twitter and LinkedIn and Reddit, which is a shockingly big platform that very few folks use and use well, but has an incredible audience. They're very you know, anti-marketing, but uh, I think authentic participation in those places and, and helpful stuff can go a long way. And certainly there are thousands of people asking questions that attorneys could do a great job answering every day on Reddit. So, yeah, there's there's opportunity, but it is uh, maybe not as obvious as it was a few years ago. Agreed. And I will just end with saying that mostly as the comment and less as a question, Whiteboard Fridays are such a great learning tool and well, for you, a teaching tool. And I know you are not with Moz anymore, but they were just super helpful to me and I think really shifted when I started kind of watching them really shifted the way I thought about how content could and should be done. And so I wanted to thank you as a fellow um, person in this space to say thank you for creating those and taking that time and thinking about doing content differently. Oh, thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah, I um, I, I think Whiteboard Friday was a you know was a big hit for a lot of folks, and I look forward to trying to find something video related or video relevant that I can do with SparkToro in the longer term. So I think that that's definitely coming. Well, I will be watching, and I hope everyone else um, will be too. And go figure out your Spark score. Go see what is trending. And take advantage of the the things that Rand is providing for now for free and then see what else he's got coming. And thank you so much, Rand, for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I'm just I'm just going to reiterate that really, really genuinely thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, continued success. And we look forward to great things from SparkToro and see you around the web. Yeah, I look forward to it. All right. Take thanks, care. you guys. Take care. Bye.
All right. I didn't geek out too much, did I? No, I thought it was, I thought it was great. <sighs> oh, good. Oh, that was so awesome. That was awesome. If you like us and you know it. Apple Podcasts. If you like us and you know it. Apple Podcasts. If you like us and you know it and you really want to show it. If you like us and you know it. Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and all of the other social media things. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. Oh, thanks for listening. That's all right. That's why we have editing. Thank you for listening to Lunch Hour Legal Marketing. If you'd like more information about what you heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Follow Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.